0: I'm Julia Gerlock, managing editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast Series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of No-till farming, is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store. Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. With growers facing tough times due to low commodity prices and rising input costs, more no-tillers than ever before are looking to add extra value to the products they grow. This might include raising non-GMO crops for overseas markets, growing high oleic content soybeans to meet specific nutritional needs, moving some acres to no-till organic production, or growing food-grade crops for sale at premium prices. This week's No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast features one of the most successful value-added projects ever started by no-tillers. Once Fred Fleming and Carl Coopers mastered no-tilling in the dry areas of eastern Washington, these two growers turned their talents to growing and marketing Shepherd's Grain Flour. Shepherd's Grain was formed to promote no-till as a way to renew and preserve the land for future family farm generations. These growers recognize that better soil makes for richer grain, which can be turned into high quality flowers that will bake better, taste better, and sell at a better price. This value added concept helped many of these growers shift from a fallow year program to annual cropping with no-till. Today, more than three dozen Eastern Washington growers are committed to growing high-quality wheat in the best possible way on more than 50,000 acres for Shepherd's Grain. If you're seeking new ways to add value to the products you grow, pay close attention to Carl Cooper's recipe for continued learning, relationship building, and persistence that he developed as he helped grow this farmer-owned company over the past 16 years. And now, here are Frank Lessiter and Carl Coopers.
1: One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you know times are hard in agriculture. Our no tillers are real innovators. They're looking for more value added ideas, and I think you've probably got the most successful value added idea of anybody in the country. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Now I want you to go ahead and explain Shepherd's Grain for for our listeners.
2: I appreciate your your statement, and and we really didn't know. I mean, in a sense, (laughs) but we just knew that we wanted something different. I be, I converted this I had a a 5600 acre dryland farm and I converted a little over half of it to straight no-till. The other two landlords that were on the other side of it, they weren't too excited yet. Uh-huh. But uh, I did convert this one portion uh, into a complete no-till uh, and at that time annual crop and diversified production system. Um did that all the way through. And then in 1999, I was getting my product cleaned at a, uh, a neighboring community he, uh, f- friend and now co-founder of Shepherd's Grain, Fred Fleming. Sure. And we were cleaning my safflower and we were just standing there talking and both of us seemed to have the same ideas around trying to create some new values to whatever we were doing. My value creator was the no-till and the diversity,
3: mm-hmm. and he
2: was trying to create the same thing just through grain by stepping outside of the commodity game. And so we realized that we had some like desires and sat down and actually in December of 1999 had our first business meeting to form the uh, what became Shepherds Grain and its uh, in its whole format. Um, Of course, the first thing, Fred had to change to a no-till system, and uh, he did so over the next three, two to three years. And we thought we would lead into the marketplace. We wanted to do this through the marketplace, not through the government. So it was all based around marketing, and we thought we would lead with a diversity. Mm -hmm. And so we actually made up some small packs of sunflowers and safflower and buckwheat and some different things. And we went to Portland, Oregon, which at the time, and still is probably one of the nation's leading uh, innovators in in food and and sourcing of food and all that. And uh, so we were very lucky that we lived in the proximity to Portland that we did, about 350 miles. Uh We took these down to a grocery outlet, our store down there, that we had seen as being one that portrayed some of the ideas and ideals that we thought were important coming from no-till. Well, they basically said no. And the reason they did, and they were right, we had no history of raising these type of crops. And so for them to make that pledge to buy something that had no history in the Northwest of raising, they were right. And so on that long drive home uh, to eastern Washington, we decided, well, what do they trust us with? And knew that they trusted us to raise wheat. Well, Fred had a relationship with the Archer Daniels Midland Mill in Spokane, Washington. And so we thought, well, maybe that's where we have to start. We'll start with wheat. But we didn't want to start with soft white, which all got exported. We wanted to try and, and stay domestically. And I had raised some Uh, dark northern spring and hardwood winter in my brief history of no-till and knew that we could. And so we basically started on a program of developing, getting some testing done. So it took two or three years and flower testing and and gaining access into some of the um, bakery market down in the Portland area. And uh, in 2003, we basically made a, our first sale to a pizza outlet in, in Portland, Oregon, called Hot Lips Pizza. Uh-huh. And that's where it began. And so uh, our 16-year history of that has still been primarily flour, baking flour. Uh, we now have multiple lines of, of baking flour that, that we make out of dark northern spring or hard red winter or even soft white and some hard white. But um, all of that was to build the brand shepherd's grain and the trust in the brand shepherd's grain. And we've certainly achieved that now to where we're, we're doing a flax program and we can start adding now these more diverse crops that weren't normally raised in our area. And they trust us. They take it on right away. The marketplace mm-hmm. immediately Good. says, no problem. You want to sell me flax, I trust you. And the ultimate goal was to to create a marketplace that rewarded not just the no-till, but the diversity. Right. So talking about
1: flax, flax pretty much was a North Dakota crop, if I'm right. Sure. And, and totally new sure. to you people. How, were growers interested in getting into flax?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because... We also have a relationship with some growers up in, in Lethbridge, Alberta. Okay. Uh, they're doing a Durham product and, and then being milled into uh, uh, Semolina. And they basically have said they, if they had to pay somebody, they would to raise flax because it has had so much positive impact in their rotations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, our growers have been more than willing to, and they've seen some pretty positive results already. So we're very excited about uh Continue. We know that no-till by itself is a huge shift from where we were, but we also know that the next step is we've got to continue to put more uh, diversity in our systems from us whole soil health. I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely logical when you, when you put it all together. That's our goal, is to right. continue to find ways to use the brand now, Shepherd's Grain, to, to grow the marketplace in these other, other crops.
1: I'm really intrigued by how you've worked with these bakers and gone and spent time in their kitchens and brought them to your fields. Uh, comment a little on that, how that's worked.
2: When Fred and I would, would sit around or we'd be driving and, and we'd talk a lot about it, we knew that there was some things we wanted to do differently. Certainly, we wanted to step away from being a taker to a price maker. And literally, we created a cost of production program. We presented it to... Some bakers and millers, and of course it came to the pricing. And we mentioned this, and they looked at us and said, "It's never been done before." And we said, <laughs> "Perfect. That's why we're going to try this." And it's been actually quite successful. But the other part of that was, you know, what it, to me one of the greatest strengths of farmers is their is their character. Right. And, and so we decided to use the farmer the relationship that we could develop from a farmer standpoint as as close to direct as we could with the buyer. And in the early days, it was totally direct. It was Fred and I driving to Portland, spending four or five days meeting with people walking in with a bag of flour on our shoulder and, and convincing them to change. Um, Uh We had a, we had a 10 year uh, anniversary now, six years ago. And I brought in the. First six people that, the people that bought our product and the first six growers that put that, put that were worth us at the time. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, why did they do it? Why did they take us on? And they just looked at us and said, it was, we just listened to you and how could we not? It's again the strength of that personal relationship that, um, has continued to today, um, continued to be the strength of, of our whole marketing program. When you first started,
1: now, you walked in with some flowers uh, that the bakers didn't like, right?
2: <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> or, I mean, you made some modifications. right?
2: Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but was the fact that we didn't know. I mean, if we would have done right. a complete business profile before we started,
3: we would mm-hmm. have never done it because
2: yeah. the the logical thinking roadblocks were, Many. And the first one would have been a baker generally doesn't change their flour, their entire history of of baking. Mm -hmm. We didn't know that. So we walked in with this product that, quite frankly, we still didn't know how good it was. If it was, we just knew we had a story behind it. Right. And uh, and so, yeah, that was one of the first things is just walking in there with a product that, you know, for a baker to make that change. And that's what they looked at us and just said, how could we not? We just looked at the two of you and we couldn't find anyone with more generosity and, and truthfulness in what they were saying. And so we took you on. And, and uh, right. um, yeah, that was that was the early stories.
1: Now, also, I think uh, if I remember that you found out that you couldn't sell flour direct to bakers, you had to go through brokers or distributors?
2: Certainly, yeah. Well, that's the first thing you have to understand. Uh, and, of course, as, especially when you're a price, maker, or a price taker, you are always questioning the, the, quote, middleman. Sure. And there was always this understanding that the distributor network was not your friend but the first thing we had to recognize is we had to utilize a distributor network and so we were extremely fortunate to find a the very first one that we ran into um was was food services America, and very positive but but the basic premise was we recognized we weren't going to push our way through a distributor network we needed to be pulled through right and again that's what kind of set set us into this motion of going around in front of the product and getting the baker to ask for it through right. the distribution network. So we were basically being pulled through the distributor network and that was and still is today. I mean a major key again of, of our success is just not trying to push our way through but being pulled through by the marketplace.
1: So on your wheat, how many growers do you have involved and are they all no-tillers or not?
2: Uh, well, first off, yes, there are, uh, that, that's a that's a uh, one of the criteria. They, okay, they, the grain has to come from no-till, and and that gives us again the opportunity in the marketplace to to our our grain is represented by 100% guaranteed coming from no-till. Uh, we uh, we've grown. Uh, we were up about 42, I think, at the peak, and we're back down to about 37 now. Um, in the northwest, and we have a couple, like I said, a couple growers up in in Canada, in Lethbridge area, doing our Uh thorough work, but um, mostly it's the expansion of the production they're willing to put into our program is what's kept us from growing anymore. We have many growers that would still like to participate, but uh, we made a pledge in the very beginning that we wouldn't reach out and get new growers until they're the demand outstripped their willingness to supply
1: mm-hmm.
2: and their willingness to supply has continued to increase over time.
1: So when you go to a grower or one of one of your really experienced no tillers, what can he an- anticipate getting more for his wheat? I mean, on a percent basis or dollar yeah. basis or what?
2: Well, what we, do, uh, they, I mean, they're, not just willing participants, they're primary participants right. in our whole program. And uh, each year, um, they fill out a cost of production. Uh, it's a pro- cost of production program that was developed by uh, uh, Dr. Herb Hinman out of Washington State University, the most extensive one he ever developed. Yeah. And so we do this cost of production, we bring those together, we uh, average them out, and that's the cost of production at the farm gate uh, for all of our producers, and uh, they know that uh, prior to even planting any spring grain, the fall grain is in. But the spring is having been planted, they already know what they're going to receive for it. And um, so, within that cost of production, is an extremely sustainable cost and price. And um, that's so that's they know in advance what they're gonna get paid for on their wheat. And then we, we sit down with them and, and uh, we analyze our market needs and uh, create uh, contracts with them to go forward into that next crop year.
1: So when you're doing this in the winter and you've got this average cost of production set, at that same time or shortly after, do you set the price at what you're gonna charge the bakers or distributors?
2: We're not able to actually set the price clear to that point because we okay. set a price with the mill. And then the mill actually owns the wheat and continues to own the flour through the process. So, when the distributor network buys the flour, they're actually buying it from ADM. Okay. And so, there's a, we lose some of that control, but we're still comfortable with letting well, it, them put on works.
1: their right. profit it margins
2: out. as well. So that, right. You know,
1: it works out. Tell me about uh, bringing some of these bakers and others back to the grower farms
2: in the concept of relationship marketing there's nothing stronger when i was in management i would not let anybody that came on a bus trip to leave without having a brown nose i mean (laughs) you know we sold them on the soil no-till serves itself well in describing itself when you can dig up a shovel full and the worms are there and the and that wonderful aroma of healthy healthy soil Right. And then we can relate, we relate to them the idea that this is simply composting. Um, you know, we're, we're allowing that, that uh, residue to naturally go back into the soil, and the microbial population is, is using that as a food source and growing a whole new population. Uh, you know, we're literally walking on this roof tops and uh, just getting them to understand that. And they, they, they can grasp that quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, uh, we literally have, in the, in the 16 years, we've lost only one customer that came and then chose not to purchase based mm. upon those, those trips out to the farm. And for some of these people, it can mean a, uh, five hour bus ride each way. Mm. I mean, you know, leaving at six o'clock in the morning, getting home at eight, nine o'clock at night, yeah. um, just to do that. And, uh, we sell those buses out pretty quickly. So yeah. it's been a, it's been a real tool in our ability to, um, create customers because uh, people within their companies may change, the bakers may change. And that's the first thing they do is have them come to uh, and visit the farm. And then, and then they go back with a whole different attitude.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, in the early
2: days I used to talk about, you know, I mean, when they go back after they've been on a farm visit, they're gonna spend a little bit extra time kneading that dough and you know, and they're gonna make it work. Right. Um rather than give up on it. And and I think that's been one of the keys in our success.
1: Yeah, just what you were talking about and going along and changing their viewpoints, there's a comment it's on your website. As Fred says when you bake with shepherd's grain or support the many institutions who choose us you become a food activist and the disciple to save the family
2: farm. He picked up on that in the very beginning and and I you know I'd watch him make those statements and Mm -hmm. yeah I mean they've been very impactful Um, and he's right I mean they do truly become an activist for the evolution of of no-till in the northwest and and beyond and so it's it's been uh, quite something to see that happen.
0: We'll rejoin Frank and Carl in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new cornhead when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Calmer Cornheads BT Chopper Stock Rolls? As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor sharp knives, BT choppers cut, chop, and shears corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your cornhead problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit their website at calmercornheads.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact.
4: When we think of the many benefits of no-tilling, we're reminded of the comments made by an Indiana Soil Conservation Service worker back in 1972. At the level of conservation acceptance at that time in his area, he indicated it would take 118 years to control erosion with strip-cropping, terraces, and other conservation practices or as he said in 1972, area farmers could switch to no tillage and enjoy the same progress in controlling erosion in just one year's time.
0: And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Carl.
1: You got this finer your grower feature, tell me about that.
2: Our, my son was at Gonzaga University, and he was in computers, he was studying in the computer industry, and told me about how — I mean, nothing is secret anymore. There was no way that you could prevent people from understanding parts of your business or whatever. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to make sure this thing has to be as most transparent right out of the get-go. Why, what, what purpose would I serve if I was trying to not be transparent? And so transparency became an absolute key as well. Uh, I mean, even to the point where we would bring buyers in when we were early in our cost of production development and have them sitting right there with us while we were putting some of these cost structures in, they would look at us and go, is that all you're putting in? We go, well, yeah, (laughs) you know, uh, we'd never been around that arena. Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
2: So the transparency was a big part of that. Well, a second part of that also was this idea of, Identity preservation that was kind of a Something not really new, but you could see it was something that had a future. I felt right and so uh, Our product uh, is maintained an identity preservation from the grower through to the bag of flour And I thought well if it is then let's let's showcase that and so basically uh, when we take our grain to the mill we know Five or six growers, whatever, took their grain into that mill for that mill run. And we know when the bag gets its date on it, we know who put the grain in that program, yeah. in that mill run. And so literally the, uh, the buyer can go on our website, look at the date and put it in, and they'll bring up the list of the growers that, that raised the wheat for that mill run. Mm-hmm. Wow, and it just that's gives great. Them, what we find is that, I mean, they all appreciate it. They like it. They'll use it a couple times. And that's, that's kind of it, but there's a few that use it every, every time they get, uh, a, some, a new product, they, uh, they advertise it in their retail outlets. But uh-huh. for the most part, it was one of those situations where they're very happy that it's available, but they don't use it all the time.
1: Well, on this identification thing, you're ahead, of the, you're ahead of the other people. Suddenly, everybody's getting interested in doing that these days, and consumers are asking more questions than ever before.
2: Without a question. I mean, there's so many of these things that seemed apparent to us that have come into the fruition now of, of almost a nationwide movement in, in the arena of caring about where your food comes from, caring about how it's produced, and then having the accessibility to – to knowing that
1: yeah so the other thing is each of these growers is certified by Food Alliance tell us tell yes. me about that
2: well again it was one of those things um, walking through this idea I mean a, a first-party certification is just you trust me that what I'm saying is true mm-hmm second-party certification can mean that my neighbor who likes me he'll tell you what i'm doing and you got to trust that he's telling you the truth (laughs) all right and i used to used to use the term the deeper you dig in no-till literally and figuratively the better you like it yeah and i thought okay i've got this great great system and and so i wanted to make sure that 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 was supported out there and so uh, I learned about uh, Food Alliance, which was down in Portland. There was two or three other third-party certifiers, and they had a meeting one time, and I went down and I walked around to each one of them and tried to analyze who would best fit what we were doing in, in our marketplace, and Food Alliance just stood out. And so uh, that was one of the very beginning. We All of our producers had to go through that third-party certification program of Food Alliance and continue to today. Um, so uh, that's been a stalwart in our, in our program. Again, you know, people will look at their standards, accept them, and then that's probably the last time they'll ever look at them.
3: Mm-hmm. But,
2: but they always know that that is still there and that our growers are going through. And, and the greatest part of Food Alliance was their continuum of improvement. Those those standards have continued to improve, they weren't just a stagnant, I kind of go back to USDA programs, you know, we'd we'd have these great ideas come out and by the time they got implemented they became unrecognizable Uh and that bothered me and so I wanted to take it the other way. I wanted to find something that these are the standards and they, they got better. We didn't weaken them. We didn't whine about that and say, well, this doesn't work or it doesn't fit for everybody. Yes, this is what we're going to live by. And we've talked a lot about, do we still need that? And pretty much without question, everybody answers, yep, it's still necessary. So we still, still maintain that third-party certification.
1: So, in working with these bakers, the most important thing to them is uh, getting the flour that they need, but they like to know what the identification is, where the growers are from. How'd you sell them on the real value of no-till being part of this program?
2: It just seemed, uh-huh. it, was, it was such a simple concept with a tremendous amount of goes gone behind it, but it just seemed so much the right thing to do. And it, just, it was an easy story to tell yeah and uh since then i think the the biggest thing that's probably come about is is now with 16 years of of history is the quality of a product that um, has maintained itself and continued to improve it was was another thing too i mean we were at both of us were at an age i've been there farm for 30 years late 50s you know i just wanted to try something different if if What I really wanted didn't work. I'd go try something else. And so there was no compromise of the values that we believed in. And again, I think that's what those bakers, those early bakers told us. It was just that absolute belief that we had in what we were doing and why we were doing it that just convinced them they wanted to be part of it.
1: Yeah. Well, you were already successfully no-towing, so that was part of what you were offering.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely there was never a question in my mind that what we were doing was exactly the right thing and and at the same time you you started hearing so much about not just agriculture being put down but the recognition that we were going to have billions of more people to feed and how are we going to do that and and i looked direct i looked directly at what i was doing and suggesting that's how we're going to do it we're going to be able to because we were taking ground that raised a crop every two years certainly putting it into an annual crop and, and eventually over time, now they're, these guys are reaching yields every year that they used to make every two years. Right. Right. So, um, I know we're on the right track from that standpoint, but again, it was just one of those things that we just walked into those rooms and those bakeries and just thought, well, you know, you give it your all and if if they right. weren't interested, you walk down the street.
1: Tell me how flax will be used by these people.
2: Well, just in a rotation, you know, now for, for, I mean, many of them are trying to develop four and five-year rotations, uh, implementing, uh, you know, some of the legumes that they do in the Palouse region. They've always done the peas and lentils and garbs. Um, introduce, you know, not the introducing, but maintaining those, introducing flax, um, introducing sunflowers, just trying to create the diversity. We know that the soil health, we know, you know, we've, We've seen it. I mean, by now, many of these guys, if not they're 20, 25 year no tellers and they know it. Um, you know, we have relationships with guys up in Canada that have been in it longer and they know this. So it's, it's the right thing to do. We know it. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of now trying to use the marketplace. That was the thing, you know, um, you can, you can raise everything you want, but if you can't sell it, it's no good. Right. So with the Shepherd's Grain brand now, we know that we can assist them. And for most of that part of the diversity, we're still just assisting them. We're not actually marketing it directly as a Shepherd's Grain product, but we assist them in our market arena by providing access to, uh, to these growers' products. So.
1: so I'm going to show you how little I know about flax. So it's going to be sold as flax flour.
2: No, um, right. no, you actually sell flaxseed. A lot of your uh, seven-grain, nine-grain bread, they'll have flaxseed on it. There's a, there's a lot of uses for flax. Uh, just selling it as flaxseed, and you put it in drinks, it's protein, it's fiber, it's all of that stuff. got okay. uh, the omega-3 fatty acid complex, um, very positive in that arena. So it has a lot of value in the food sector. You'll see a lot of your energy bars, things like that, most all of them will contain flax seeds. There's a, always has been a lot of flax uh, in, in bread making and um, yeah. So it's it's but it's it's rotation benefits. We're really starting we just you know most of these guys are they might be in their second rotation of flax, maybe even a third, and starting to really see the, the soil benefits.
1: Yeah. So our no tillers back here in the corn belt. Um, they're they're looking for some other crops. There's a number of people with big acreages. Or, I mean, we had a we had a speaker at the no-till coverage this year. It's going to put in 800 acres of organic no-till. So they're looking for different things, but they're kind of similar to what you had in the, in the Northwest because you were pretty much wheat oriented, and here in the Corn Belt we're pretty much corn and soybeans. And some people have taken wheat out of their rotation and they are just corn and soybeans. But when they look at these other crops, they just can't seem to get the money back out of them that they think they need. So what do they do? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, I think that the biggest thing is, is to isolate what they do, isolate what they produce. You've got to find a willing manufacturer or you know somebody to clean the product, get it into a marketable form, and then finding the time To get around in front of it and and market it i mean corn's a tough one because you know the gmo argument is out there that debate i shouldn't say argument well it is an argument but it's more i wish it was a better debate but you know both corn and soy have have that difficulty that they've got to walk through which they can again it's it's developing personal relationships with the buyer uh, bringing them to the farm, showcasing their farm, showcasing what they do, why they do it. You can do it by yourself, but long term, you know, you need to follow up with other growers and then put together a strategy of, of going into the marketplace with traits that you have that nobody else has.
1: I forgot to mention one thing that, our, that some of our growers are doing with both corn and soybeans, and that's raising non-GMOs and sure. the, and some of these people sure. have developed a pretty decent market for that.
2: You study what's going on in the marketplace. What are they saying? You know, I mean, you I mean, literally we used to just get on the internet and look up bakers in Portland and and you'd read what they were saying about their customer base or their ideas or goals uh or values. And you'd go to them if they matched up, if they if their values and your values match up, go talk to them. Yeah. Um and so that's what you're really doing is finding like partners and 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 that's what you work with and you the, through these relationships you develop that um certainly GMO obviously is is a, a big player today in the domestic market yeah. um so you know that and and as you add no till there's a there's a ton of stuff to talk about from a no till standpoint again this whole idea that you're li- you know you're creating a living compost Right Uh, in your Earth's crust, and and how valuable that is to its future. You know, you really want to talk the word sustainable. That's it. I mean, no till. Well, I always used to say, well, nature doesn't till.
1: Right. Very good.
2: I mean, nature's been farming forever. Right. And pretty successfully. Well, that's what we're trying to come back towards is is mimicking nature, and unfortunately there's uh, a few too many billions of people on our surface to to allow us to do it completely naturally so we we add we add technology we add synthetic fertilizers and we add other things judiciously and correctly right. in order to sustain uh, the food source for the people we have. Well, we talk about
1: today, we talk about soil health, we talk about sustainability, diversification, cover crops, no-till. My gosh, our no-tillers have been doing that since we started No-Till Farmer in 1972. We had an article in the first issue of No-Till Farmer on cover crops. Sure. (laughs) So are you going to be able to expand beyond the Pacific Northwest?
2: Uh, Certainly. Fred wanted to do that. From the get-go and i used to tell him because he was <laughs> he was handling the logistics and the grower base and everything else and i was trying to to manage the company and do this the marketing side and i just right. said fred we've got so much to do here i don't have the bandwidth to go beyond this right and we have we, you know we still have a great opportunity here in the northwest but yes we're looking at opportunities to to go well beyond that we've had people talk to us about you know looking for us to give some leadership and some guidance in some of these other areas of the United States, and so we're, we're definitely looking at that, and uh, yeah, I, I would think in the next couple of years you'll see us uh, have a much bigger footprint Good. Um, across the United States.
1: So anybody who's interested in value-added needs to read your book. Tell me the title and where we could someone could get it.
2: Well, thank you for that. The title of the book is Too Dumb to Fail, Too Smart to Quit. <laughs> to the first reason I wrote it is so my grandfather didn't know what grandpa did. But the second reason <laughs> right. was is to give others the opportunity to just recognize that two farmers put this deal together. And it's, right. owned, it's actually for sale on Amazon. I will tell you that my son's the one that gave me the too dumb to fail. At 10 years, he looked at us and said, you guys couldn't do this again. I said, what do you mean we couldn't? He said, because you know too much.
3: <laughs>
2: but I mean, it was the simplicity of our belief. And the simplicity yeah. of our values, that turned out to be the positive opportunity in the marketplace. Right. And so, and again, they were these values, and of course, the no kill gave us that absolute core of the value base that we were projecting. Yeah. And there just there wasn't another way. And so, uh, as I was writing the book, I had a couple young ladies helping me and they were the ones that said, well, okay, you were too dumb to fail, but actually you were too smart to quit yeah, and yeah. so that became the, the title. It is, it is a great story and, and when you're living it, you just live it. I mean, you just put on blinders and keep going and people would pat you on the back and you'd say, well, thank you, but I got to go to work. Yeah. And so it hasn't been until I stepped away from the management and looked back to recognize what we had done and what we had created, and we're very proud of it. And uh, but more importantly, I wanted to uh, write this book to give other people the same opportunity to recognize that your head might get, your forehead might get a little sore by bumping into some of the walls, but you just you go through to the other side. Just go, well. Yeah. People I mean, would it, tell us we couldn't do certain things, we couldn't have that many distributors, or we couldn't do this, and we'd look at them right. and go, Well. We are, and we're not going back, you know, right. so we just keep going. Your okay. listeners to anybody that would be interested. It's a, not a long read, and it's a good read, and I think it gives them, especially those that are looking to do something similar, it's a pretty good road map.
1: Yep. I got my wife to buy me a copy for Christmas, and when I opened it, I sat down on Christmas Day and read the whole thing. So it's an easy, yeah. quick <laughs> quick read, and it's well written. What have I missed from getting from you in this conversation we should uh, talk about?
2: Not really much. Okay. Um, yeah, I... I'm excited about our future, uh, especially based around the research that we're working on to uh, to take a, a really good look at no-till wheat. There's something different. This soil is producing something different, and um, I think we're we're honing in on what it is and and why it is. Uh, and then we're 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 anxiously awaiting going through the testing procedures and and all that we need to do to do that. Um, and certainly the marketplace, gosh, 16 years ago, if Portland, Portland wasn't as close as it was, I, we would have struggled. <laughs> yeah. But the marketplace across the nation today, the heartland of America, is bleeding in this stuff now. Yep. So um, I think today its, it's accessibility is, is much better. You don't need a Portland, Oregon. I think you have the municipalities, the urban centers that people care about where their food comes from, cares about how it's produced and 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 again it's the strength of using the the farmer as the leading attribute you know i mean there's a lot of negativity out there but when people get a chance to meet and shake their hand and sit down at the dinner table and 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 say the the prayer before dinner or whatever they they leave there with a different perspective and and it's one that supports what you're doing and supports your market opportunities so
1: well you were ahead of the curve I I still think you're the best example of value added in agriculture and no-till in the country I haven't found anybody that's done more than you and I think you will do very well because the consumer is more interested in, in things like that you're doing than they've ever been before so thank you for doing this for us today
2: well thank you Frank for the recognition and again that was the the premise we wanted to advance no-till yeah and to do it through the marketplace you did it and so we continue to want that for for everyone Uh, I think it's it is the future if you think about it we've actually taken wheat which had become a low-end commodity and made the flour something special right and uh, and that can be that can be done for anything if you can do it with wheat you can do it with anything
0: Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a reader inquiry about cover crops.
4: We recently had a reader ask what were the most popular cover crops that are being seeded by no-tillers. Results of our 11th Annual No-Till Benchmark Study on No-Till indicates that almost 79% of no-tillers are seeding cover crops and they put in an average of 471 acres of cover crops each year. The most popular cover crops were cereal rye at 71%, other small grains such as sweeter barley at 49%, and radishes and turnips at 46%. Annual ryegrass was being used by about 25% of our readers as a cover crop.
0: Thank you to Frank Lessiter and Carl Coopers for today's conversation. If you're looking for ways to add market value to your crops, Frank says you need to get a copy of Carl's book. It's a tremendous story on how growers found a way to advance no-till and make it pay by marketing high-quality wheat at a premium price. The title of Carl's book is "Too Dumb to Fail and Too Smart to Quit: The Story of Shepherd's Grain." It's available for sale through Amazon and also on the Shepherd's Grain website at www.shepherdsgrain.com. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.